Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, the end of May is upon us, which means that we have to go into NPR mode for just just uh, just two minutes here and say that this is the time of year, uh, always, and of course, in during Corona, it's extra. Um, urgent, uh, where we appeal to listeners to help support this work. Uh, we've, I feel like it's, we've been very well received having gone to uh, weekly, uh, weekly uh, frequency, which is, you know, it's, it's a lot of work, but it's been a joy, especially to hear from so many people. Where are you guys at? Uh, chime in here. Support Mockingbird. It's 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 a good ministry. I mean, it's uh, I think it's just such a lifeline for so many people. You know, so many um, just Christians or people who are interested in Christianity, uh, pastors, leaders. I think, Dave, I'll say I'm always grateful for the research you do. Your level of connectedness to. Um, the culture and the the moment, and to sort of just continue to connect these eternal life-giving truths with the um, reality of our everyday lives. Um, that, that this is this is real. This is real stuff. You know, it's come up over the past couple episodes. How, and I think this to myself too. What we're doing, like it it is a it is a head trip but it's not a head trip right that that what matters is what's going on in people's hearts and minds that trumps anything else trumps any circumstances is is the hope that we have within us and how we face the difficulties of our lives and i know that um mockingbird helps me to do that helps me to integrate the reality of my life with a god who loves me and is for me um, in a powerful way. And I think allows me to communicate that more effectively to my congregation in a way that no other ministry does. Um, and so I think it's easy, uh, it's so, it's easy to give, right? Get on the website, um, make a recurring uh, a PayPal donation. If you do $10, you'll get the quarterly, which is incredible. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think, I think uh, the ministry is absolutely worth everyone's support. Well, I'm just thinking about how like one of my lifelong aspirations was to work for National Public Radio. So I'm always excited when I get to talk about fundraising because <laughs> I really had the goal of being able to do this and use words like tote bag and coffee mug. Um, we don't have those. Um, but what we do have, and I feel like I say this a lot, but I'm okay with that, is a ministry that I feel like I just don't think there's another ministry out there that touches the huge wide swath of humanity from left to right the way that this ministry does. Like yes. the ability to be able to talk about the fact that you've been given freedom and what does that freedom look like? And that we get to do it week after week and that we don't do it by saying, here's what's wrong in the world, right, as Christians, and we're going to judge it and separate ourselves from it. We see God's mercy and grace over and over again in the world around us, and we see it in all types of people. And I, I think that's what makes this ministry really compelling. And so, mm. you know, if you want to give to something that that isn't... 
out to divide people, um, give some money to Mockingbird. Mm. Gosh, well, that those are that's very compelling. I really have been stunned by how many people have mentioned that Mockingbird seems to be basically made for times a time like this, and it's not. And I think sometimes what people mean is like, oh, because you're online and you have platforms and channels and stuff like that. But the reason I think that they that that's really being said is the message that we we talk about, which is that people need help and that they're. Uh, in pain and they're broken and they're guilty and they're, they're all sorts of, uh, you know, suffering is, is so real and that God is, uh, active in the world, you know, with, with, with grace and mercy and forgiveness. And that, uh, I think really speaks to a time when so much agency has been taken from people and there's so much fear. So I hope that that's come across. Um, it does cost something to do what we do. So if you want to give, please consider it. And I will read this wonderful note that we got from Allie up in New Hampshire. She wrote, Dear Dave, RJ, and Sarah, thank you so much for your podcast. I've enjoyed it for several months now, going on a year, but have started to rely on it more and more in these quarantine times. On some days, it feels like I'm escaping to the basement to enjoy a clandestine beer with old friends. Increasing the frequency of the broadcasts has been a godsend. I'm especially thankful for the permission granted by Sarah in the Karen episode to let go of the parenting guilt over homeschooling, screen time, and insert here the number of other failures that now seem amplified. This reassurance saved my sanity and readjusted much-needed expectations in our house. Regards, Allie. Praise make God. It a, make it a White Claw, Allie, and we'll be there. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. This, this podcast brought to you by White Claw. <laughs> <laughs> No, that, I mean, that's that's amazing. I'm so glad that this has been a lifeline for her. And, I, you know, I have to say, like, we we get these emails, like, a couple times a week right now. Um, and it's really powerful to hear from people and to know that this is actually, like, making a connection. So, yeah. Thank you for listening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Keep, keep oh the gosh. encouragements coming or the questions or the or the or just the... Uh, the barbs, as it were, uh, we love to hear from you. And it's it's a privilege, you know, in the midst of so much uh, chaos and, you know, stress, uh, getting to do this is, is a pleasure for us. And that other people get something from it is just a real Thanksgiving for me personally. Um, and of course, I get to get to hang out with my two good, my two dear friends. Um, so pitch over. You can go to ember.com slash support and uh, figure that out. But um, let's check in. What's uh, what's going on in, in Sarah and RJ land? Well, our kid, uh, as the listeners may know, broke his arm twice this year in third grade. And he just got his cast off like an hour ago. And we are... I'm just thankful. We're so excited. It's funny. It's like last week it was her birthday and we were all getting geared up for that collectively. And this week it was like, Neil's going to get his cast off. So we're all getting geared up for that. Um, I got like a blow up pool for the backyard. Cause I feel like we've been in a hospital, so no one should get anywhere near us for a while. Um, and they're, the kids are going to get in this afternoon, but, um, I don't know. It feels like because there's just less of everything right now that these like family moments that felt honestly a little burdensome and like one more thing I had to do are actually like things we can collectively gather around and get excited about. And I'm really thankful for that. So yeah. 
Blow up pools. Yeah, man. They're great. It's Texas. <laughs> yeah. Woo. It's been a big week in the Heyman household. Um, a lot of it revolving around my oldest son, Jackson, who turned 18 on Wednesday, kind of, uh, you know, became a man. He's a man, man. Um, and then uh, yesterday, Thursday, he graduated from high school, and it was really sweet what they did. It was a, a drive, sort of a drive-by graduation. Um, his school has this sort of long driveway with a circle at the end. And so, you know, families came through in cars, and the teachers lined the streets, and they were holding signs, and they gave away gift baskets, and a lot going on. Birthdays, celebrations, moving. That's um, so much, RJ. It's a lot. It is mm -hmm. a lot. Uh, but I think we're, we're, we're doing okay. We're hanging, we're hanging in there and just taking, like, one day at a time because what yeah. else can you do? Yeah. You know, just put, it's like, we will make it one foot in front of the other by the grace of God. And um, so just thankful. I'm thankful. Dave, how are you guys? Well, you, this afternoon, I'm a little, little bit of a cloud over my head just because we found out that what we knew was coming, but that my son's overnight camp that was in July is not happening. Mm -hmm. And oh. that's just, uh, you know, I, we kind of tried to be preparing him for that. And um, it looked like at one point that there was a chance they were going to do it with some, you know, new strategies and things like that. But um, I was hoping that he'd be spared that, but it's not happening. It's probably for the best, but uh, who on earth knows? I, so I was reading someone today saying that like, we're whatever eight weeks into the corona quarantine and uh i'm more confused about this virus than ever before yeah it's like what's permissible what's not and you know the skepticism sets in and then the 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 then then the fear and then it just sort of toggle between all these things but overall i feel pretty happy you know I've, as i've detailed on here every single week i've my childhood obsessions have been, you know, buoying me, my mental health and spiritual life throughout this time. And, and this week's going to be no exception to that. Do you guys like Calvin and Hobbes? Yes. Oh my God. I love Calvin and Hobbes. It was like my favorite thing when I was a kid. And now I love it because I literally have a kid that has a lion that follows her around in her brain all the time. And <laughs> like, I will, t you got to read the article, but I have to say when I was reading it, I was thinking about how like the other night, her lion that she has was like literally perched around her head. Like it was holding her to keep her safe. Yeah. And Josh is always the one that, you know, takes her to the potty before we get to bed later. And so he, he came in, he's like, you got to see this. And I came in to see it and I was like, maybe we're the ones that are wrong. Like maybe lions actually <laughs> real and like actually does protect her. You know, I love Calvin and Hobbes. It's amazing. RJ, you're, you're Calvin Hobbes. Oh yeah, we've got a, we've got a little uh, Calvin in our life. You know, my wife and I joke. Uh, one of our favorite moments of every day is just the first thing that's going to come out of Marshall's mouth when he wakes up. You know, one day he, yeah. he wakes up, he looks at me, he goes, "Dad, I don't like hot sauce." First thing, you know, or uh, or, uh, <laughs> or he wakes up, um, I need a Darth Vader mask. Um, today my wife got up before, you know, before he did, um, because she had so much work to do. And then she came back into the bedroom when he woke up and he was like, Oh mom, I'm so glad. I thought you were dead forever. Oh my God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's just like utterly incredible and 
utterly exhausting. Mm. So I, I wish I had the imagination and the energy to keep up. Yeah. You know, I, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's tough to engage at all times. I do my best, but well, let's read, uh, man. this is from Chuck Wendig writing in Polygon on Calvin and Hobbes and quarantine. This is what he says. He says, Calvin was looking for a way out. He was trying to escape. This is, by the way, if you've been living under a rock, Calvin and Hobbes is a newspaper comic strip that ran from 1986 to 1995. Turn on Google. Um, Calvin was looking for a way out. He was trying to escape. He didn't like school, so he fled it as Spaceman Spiff. Bath time, a nightmare for small children, saw Calvin turning into a tub shark or being attacked by a bubble bath elemental. He escaped the corporeal form of a kid's limited body with the transmogrifier, and most importantly of all, escaped loneliness by befriending a stuffed tiger who Calvin knew was actually real. A tiger who listened to him, who challenged him, and ultimately who loved him. Because that's the thing, isn't it? Calvin went to school, had a loving family, but even still he felt alone, and his imagination gave him a way not to feel that anymore. In lockdown, we're all Calvin. Calvin was trapped with his parents, with teachers, with the limitations of childhood. A day he wanted to spend with Hobbes was spent seated in a classroom. Then there's bath time or swimming lessons or buckled up in the car as his mother runs errands. In lockdown, we're all in the house on a rainy day, caught in endless Zoom meetings for work or if we have kids in school. Uh, We are all in our own heads and we all just want to go out and play. And then they talk about one of the great innovations of Calvin and Hobbes trip is something called Calvin Ball, which made numerous appearances. It was a sort of an anarchic uh, game. There's only one rule in Calvin Ball, and that rule is that you never play it the same way twice. Otherwise, you make it up as you go. You change the rules as you see fit, and arguably, if you care to find a game in the gamelessness of it, it's a game of one-upsmanship where invented rules defeat rules that defeat other rules. It is a chimera. A slippery eel. It is the search for order swiftly dissolving into the delight of anarchy and entropy. We're all in a game of Calvin Ball right now, knowing there are rules, but they are not the old rules, and they're probably not even yesterday's rules, because every day feels both somehow exactly the same, the game itself, and entirely different, for the rules have now changed. I think here in isolation, he writes, where we're alone and lonely, there's more to find in the Calvin and Hobbes that Watterson gave us. We can find a small child, an anarchist boy, and his outsized imagination. We can find the friends he makes in his own mind, the adventures that exist in his head. We can find someone who already understands the rigors of being trapped by circumstances he did not approve of. No, not a rampant pandemic. But the doom of homework, the torment of bath time, the particular trials of being trapped in the house with your family. And we see, too, the solutions to that. Limitless, even lawless imagination. You know, I uh, knew who Calvin and Hobbes were and really was exposed to them because I had this very eccentric um, godfather named Bill Hoppick who... um, was really tall. Uh, I mean, he was tall even though I was a kid. He was still, he was probably six five. He was really tall and he was really loud and really crazy and an on again, off again alcoholic, had served in Vietnam. Um, I'm not sure why my parents picked him. <laughs> he was very devoted to the church that I grew up in in Mississippi. And um, when my brother was born, I think they ch- they chose Bill for Aaron. And then I kind of got adopted into that. Um, and 
he was total totally wild uh in a lot of ways i think i was thinking about how he used to flip me in the air and i was really tall as a kid um and so there weren't many adults that i could kind of climb up their body and flip over because i was so tall you know how kids do that and bill always let me do it um and i don't know i i was thinking about how he died alone um in a veterans hospital uh having just basically slaughtered every relationship in his life that he could have. And, um, including his relationship with my parents, uh, but just with everyone, with his ex-wife, with every, you know, with everyone. And, um, I don't know, I guess it's weird. I was thinking about how sometimes when we have those people in our lives, it can feel like not redemptive or something and and how what a gift it was for him to like give me Calvin and Hobbes as a kid um and actually I was thinking about how I haven't even though I'm basically I'm legitimately raising a Calvin and my son in so many ways (laughs) and um I wrote a piece about boys for our website that a lot of people read and and I remember thinking about Calvin as I was writing that piece and also we have this daughter that totally has a magical relationship with a lion that she thinks is real. Um, how, I don't know. There's some redemption for Bill Hoppick in that, that like, I need to, I need to share this stuff with my kids. I don't know. That's really personal and I'm not sure it's like applicable to anything, but. So wait, did he, I was he thinking, gave you Calvin and Hobbes? Is yeah. He was the first person. I wouldn't have known what Calvin and Hobbes was without him. Oh. He gave me like a giant book of Calvin and Hobbes. Oh my gosh. Um, I, so I missed that part. Yeah. Yeah. So. Anyway, I, I, that's kind of what comes to mind. It's like funny to read Calvin and Hobbes now because I just see Bill, you know what I mean, in so many ways, like this kind of lawless, wild guy. Yeah. Um, sorry, that was sad. <laughs> it's just what it makes me think of. No, it's, it, this is where it takes us. Calvin and Hobbes <laughs> is, for a lot of us, does, does I think, uh, touch on that inner child that yeah, our, our inner that, Calvin, and that, that's and he was so wounded, you know. I mean, the character of Calvin is deeply sort of. He does have that thing where he kind of just wants to be by himself, and you know, I know a lot of little kids like that, and um, and we we kind of. It's funny. I feel like little kids used to be left alone more about wanting to be alone, hmm. and now because we're anxious about every single thing in our child's lives, we're constantly worried that they don't have enough friends and they're not, you know, they don't have enough people around them and they're not doing enough and they're not in a way that no other generation of parents has ever worried before. Um, I think it probably would do parents a lot of good to go back and read some Calvin and Hobbes and realize that this kid was like pretty happy in his own little world, mm-hmm. you know? RJ, where, where are you at? It's funny what you say, Sarah, about leaving kids alone who want to be alone. Like, Marshall never, Mm -hmm. ever wants to be alone. He always wants to be with somebody. Um, Another thing he did yesterday, it was kind of a hard day for him because he was in the car a lot. He didn't get a nap. He didn't eat particularly well yesterday. And as I think my wife said to Dave's wife when she was having boys, she said, boys are like dogs. You got to run them, uh, feed them and and sleep them or they go insane. And uh, yesterday was a day when he didn't get any of those things. And so we got home and on the way home, he's like, I'm going to run away. I'm running away. I'm like, okay. So we get home, we open the car door and he runs a hundred yards down the sidewalk and just sits down. You know, he was, he was just done. Um, I tell that story, I, Dave, as you were talking, I never realized 
that Calvin, yeah, he was an only child. As far as he we was know. an only child, as right? As far as we know. And I, as far as we know, and a, two of the members of the Mockingbird Holy Trinity, um, Weird Al Yankovic and Fred Rogers, were also only children. Um, and Marshall, to a certain extent, is going to end, totally. end up kind of being like an only child because his next oldest sibling is 12 years older than he is. We've talked about that, and it worries us a little bit um, for ourselves, honestly, because we're like, oh, my God, he doesn't have a playmate. What are we going to do? But thinking about Calvin and Hobbes, thinking about Fred Rogers, thinking about Weird Al Yankovic um, makes me more hopeful. You know, not that there's anything wrong with only children. I'm just, I'm, I'm a little worried about him. And he does have a big imagination. And um, it'll be interesting to see how that all pans out. But there was some comfort in that, that the kids do, uh, they make their own fun, hopefully, God willing. They get yeah, into trouble, too. I, I, I think that loneliness and imagination get such a bad rap. And they used to be completely normal fixtures of childhood, you know? Um, and they now do. now we all feel like we have to, you know, like, entertain them and be... I don't know. It's just fascinating to me. I mean, like, when... And, and, and also, when we think about some of the great thinkers, you know... Um, and most creative people we know, you know, they all had a sort of lonely, imaginative childhood. I mean, there's, I don't know, mm. there is a lot of, I think, grace for only children. I hadn't really well, thought about that it, in this Calvin and Hobbes stuff. Well, you know, I, I just mentioned my grief about summer camp getting canceled for my son. And one of the things I, that I was excited about was the sort of, you know, having friends and the social emotional yeah. time of summer camp and the outdoorsness and basically part yeah. of the Calvin and Hobbes experience, but not the lonely part. And they've all gotten a, a heavy dose, at least, even though I've got three boys, um, and they've spent a lot of time with each other. They've also gotten a lot of alone time during this. And 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 maybe mm. it's not something to grieve to the extent that I feel like I have grieved it. Because I, I do have one child who goes outdoors for hours at a time and says, I'm doing my imagination. Don't bother me. Oh, my God. I love that. I do. And it's, oh, it's, it's amazing. Is that the middle one? It's the middle one. His yes. Name's, name's Cavill. He's my whole oh. heart. <laughs> but the oldest one, you know, shoots baskets forever. And he's yeah. thinking about Michael Jordan, you know, and he's yeah. in his imagination and he yeah. can't do it yeah, with yeah, his yeah, friends. Yeah. 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 And so I wonder about that. You know, one of the great things about Calvin and Hobbes and Bill Watterson in general is he located not only the childhood as being as all being sort of inner children in a way, because Calvin would sometimes speak with a college education and sometimes not, but the inner life, the interior yeah. life is... Um, is where we live. And sometimes that means that means we're extraordinarily sad, but can also be where we find solace and love and comfort. And, uh, you know, I, as a, as a Christian, Jesus seems to be very interested in the eternal life. When we, when we always talk yeah. about the Sermon on the Mount, and he's, he's equating internal motivation with external action. There's an attention to that, that I think, um, it was Hannah Arendt once said that St. Paul, his great, uh, when he wrote Romans 7, and he says, the good that I do, I do not do, and, and that mm -hmm. which I hate doing, that I keep on doing. She said he basically invented his greatest discovery. His great discovery was um, the internal person and at war, war with oneself. 
and that that yeah. was not an Aristotelian idea. Yeah. That was not in classical literature, that there was an internal life that had a dynamic to it where there was conflict. And um, I, I think of Calvin and his world and the escape, but also where he's working things out. And last week, I, I went on to some uh, riff about how everything in life, so much of life is psychology. And this is part of what I meant. I think that the interior is um, trumps the exterior uh, so much of the time. And, you know, I, I, I feel like I, I, I field criticism often about um, things I've, I've written that are there. We're not focusing on external solutions as much as internal ones. And I, I you want to say, well, there's a lot of people that are dealing with the external solutions. Uh, I happen to think that the internal ones are, are, are more pressing. Honey, if people dealt with internal stuff more, we'd be our external would look a whole lot better. Well, let's, I mean, let's talk about the personal. Yeah. Can I, can I, can I go? Yes. Go on a, go go on a rant. A, it's a, I have a little bit, this is a quarantine specific rant. And I just, this is for all of the mom forums I'm on in Houston where mamas are getting on there. And I know y'all mean well, and you're saying things like, I'm so worried y'all this, this has been really hard on my kids' mental health. I'm so worried. They haven't seen their friends and I just don't, you know, I just, we've got to ask bigger questions about their mental health. I know you're sick of them and you want them to go to summer camp (laughs) and you might actually be worried about their mental health, but I know you're sick of them and you want them to go to summer camp and, and listen, maybe summer camp will stay open in Texas and you can send your babies there. But I just need to say it's driving me a little bit crazy because maybe you actually are that worried and you don't need to be, you do not need to be that worried about your child's mental health right now. They are going to be okay. They have themselves, they have Legos, they have imaginations. And if everything else falls apart, they have an iPad. You know what I mean? Like every time I read these (laughs) comments about summer camp and their child's mental health, I'm like, I mean, I think y'all live in our neighborhood. It's going to be all right. You know? So I just, Anyway, you feel free to cut that, but it has just it just drives me crazy. It takes every ounce of of reserve I have not to type in I mean it ain't Auschwitz on the comments on the mom blogs for you. We have got to stop inviting the Holocaust girl to all of our parties. <laughs> she always brings up the Holocaust in the mom blogs. Who is she? Well, you go back to Calvin and Hobbes, though, and it's almost all of it stands up, even though there are no smartphones, even though there are no, you know, hyper, you know, overscheduled extracurriculars. So much of it stands up because a lot of the questions that are being asked about, you know, goodness, badness, one of the my favorite articles I think I've ever written, period, for Mockingbird or elsewhere was the one about New Year's resolutions in Calvin and Hobbes because every single year, Bill Watterson took on New Year's resolutions. And he didn't just do it in the same way. He cataloged every conceivable um, response to the command that thou shalt be better at January 1st. And uh, he does the accusation. He does denial. He does just rationalization. He does escape. It's incredible. And so these are core, core concerns. And you go back and you read it, you, you find the playfulness, the imagination. You also find the deep existential and uh, real love for humans uh, with a bit of a, you know, I don't know, a, a, a hilarity, a silliness that, um, kind of can't be beat because some of the some of the some of the strips are just little gags 
You know, they're not always meaningful and something you can put at the end of a math test when you're, you know, in seventh grade. So talk about, let's get, get down to the nitty gritty from imagination to the here and now. This came in the Washington Post, The Dishes Will Never Be Done by Ellen McCarthy. She really gets to where a lot of us have been living. Uh, when she writes, the sink, I am sorry to tell you, is full of dirty dishes again. It's a side effect of the fact that we're all eating three meals a day plus snacks at home with school cafeterias and restaurant kitchens and fast food garbage bins no longer absorbing their share of the aftermath. Dirty dishes, of course, are the least of all problems, the very least, and so easily fixed. Soap, water, a little mindless scrubbing. Come to think of it, how dare we lament this simple chore in light of everything else? And how dare you nod in recognition? A sink perpetually brimming with dirty dishes is a proxy for all that is tedious and tiresome about life at the undramatic edges of this crisis. It is incessant, like the quarantine, repetitive, like our days at home, demanding and messy, like the tasks that fill those days, and somehow fraught with shame and judgment. Who can claim to have their act together if they can't find their Brita pitcher under the faucet? How can I have control over my life, one reader says. I don't even have control over my own dishes. You guys have any dish-related uh, conflicts uh, in your house or, or anxiety, stress? RJ, you want to go? I don't know. Dirt little secret. I, I like doing dishes. Strangely, I'm also... The, I know it's weird. I know. I know. I'm also the kind of person who... Uh, and this, I think, will give away my Enneagram. I'm the kind of person who will rearrange oh, the dishes seven. in the You've dishwasher if someone... Yes. Um, am, is that what it is? If, to the point where my wife is like, if you rearrange the dishes one more time, I will never load the dishwasher yeah. ever again. Um, now, that's not to say we don't have dirty dishes because we do. It, it's almost weird. Like, I see them and I've got, you know, I've got to get to work in the morning. But, man, I would so much rather spend 20 minutes doing the dishes and just put off the work that I have to work that I have to do. So I was trying to figure what that, what that is in my life. I mean, I totally resonated. Yeah, my, my kids will never rinse their dishes and put them in the dishwasher ever, no matter how much I threaten them, no matter how much I, I beg them. So I, I, uh, I get that. But... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I've just given up at this point. I'm not watching the news. The house is a mess. What are you going to do? Um, I, I do seek some sense of order by cleaning up the toys of the backyard, trying to do the dishes as much as I can, rearranging them when my family members do it improperly. Mm. Yeah, it's mm. a strange time. <laughs> um, I have So I have two things I'm thinking. The first one is uh, funny, maybe offensive to people, and the second one is a bit more serious. Um so, first of all, it's like this lady does not know that there's a whole section in the grocery store with paper plates. OMG. And you're not driving your car. So, like, that totally cancels out environmentally. Uh, paper plates have been a lifesaver for us. And please don't cook anything beyond hot dogs and peanut butter sandwiches before 5 p.m. Because why? Why would you do that to yourself? Um, so, those are just my tips that nobody asked for. But... <laughs> Buy paper plates, throw them in the trash, don't wash them. We use them for every single meal that we're eating right now. We've never used paper plates before. <laughs> we are only using paper plates now. Um, I buy them in packs of 400. Um, those are those are my tips. My second thing I just I want to say is, and I and I'm you know I've thought been thoughtful about when to sort of say this on the podcast, but I started anxiety medication. A month ago, um, just because I was completely falling apart um, and, you know, 
for me, household work was a kind of a big indicator of that because it just felt so overwhelming and exhaustive and like I had to do it all and I had to stay on top of it. And I don't know, all those kind of heavy things. And, you know, I've said on here before that I've struggled with anxiety and have thought about medication before and it has been awesome. So I highly recommend if you're someone in the midst of this, who's really struggling, um, with this stuff, uh, I mean, I think we could all be on a low dose of anxiety medication right now, but, um, I, I, you know, I feel like any stigma that's out there, um, I'm happy to, to, you know, speak against, um, this is hard. Mm. This is really, this is a hard thing we're living through, especially, you know, the, the, the whole concept that, you know, our houses are, are school rooms and playgrounds and, cafeterias um so paper plates and anxiety meds are my tips yeah our, our living room couch spent most of last week being a fort yes <laughs> it's, <laughs> which I mean, it actually I, was amazingly well suited for but like it but it's your couch i mean this is like we had all our you know our daughter had a birthday last week and god bless her friends they all gave her presents which my husband lovingly called our uh corona pit mm. um but we we disinfected her birthday presents and let her open them but but we like, threw them in the fire in the microwave like, our living room was so full of toys and josh finally looked at me and he's like we're running a daycare you get that right <laughs> like that's what's happening right now is it's also a daycare our house so because she's sick she's little you know so anyway it's it's hard it's ever it's hard whatever you can do to make this easier on yourself if it is ruining the environment or if it is changing your brain chemistry do it <laughs> i uh just am, i could not be more with you about the paper plates thing I, I talk about yes. talk about a true game changer i read the whole i was like scouring the article i'm like do these people not know about paper plates or is this the washington post and they're not even allowed to put that word in print like which one <laughs> i'm gonna is tell it? my you know wife I mean? she's not she's not allowed to listen to this episode skip skip the entire part about paper plates don't, <laughs> well don't, let me don't say engage, this though what it struck me is i one of my favorite books you know and a book to live by is the righteous mind by jonathan Haidt, and one he has a he in trying to illustrate self justification in in relationships he has this incredible story about how he for, did decided not to do some dishes and his that he said or not to leave dishes somewhere and his wife asks him why he didn't do it and he says before she had even finished asking the question i had already come up with several rationalizations as to why i didn't do it the truth was i just decided i didn't i didn't i, I didn't do it and i i I knew I should do it, and I didn't. And there's a real gut level to that. And for me, in my own life and marriage, because I, I do a lot of those, I do a lot of the laundry and the dishes in our house, because, um, uh, you know, different people have different giftings. But I almost can, it's very hard for me to not want a thank you or some credit, or oh, some yeah, totally. acknowledgement. 100%. And it's the, I often get from a, the brilliant person that I'm married to, it, it, uh, rightly responds, you know, if I knew that I was going to have to, you know, have this dramatic display of gratitude every time, I would rather you just not do the dishes in the first place. Uh, mm -hmm. Because that feels like I'm paying for it with this 
cost. And then you're, if I don't thank you in the right way, you're resenting me. And I totally, I get where she's coming from. And yet I find myself having a really hard time still years into marriage, not uh, keeping score. And dish is one of the reasons why we live it again. It's it, it, this is where the great rubber meets the road in lots of different relationships. I think is we keep score, and the dishes are a great courtroom. Uh, they're a great like I did that, so you got to do this. Or there's a um, you know how can you say that to me? Don't you know I just vacuumed? Or uh, I don't know what it is, but I know that if we really believe that self justification is a core human drive, and it, it is is an enemy of love. Well, then the dishes in the sink is often the venue where that plays out. So that's why it's actually not a small potatoes at all. It's a big deal because it triggers people's defenses and their credit seeking and their guilt. Scorekeeping. Yeah. Their scorekeeping, right? It does. But I think what I want to say, because, you know, there was actually a really fascinating interview uh, yesterday on Fresh Air. I can't remember who it was with, but a lot of research around the fact that women are picking up, you know, we were, we, we were already doing a lot of this in many households, a lot of the sort of domestic stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, and now we're doing that and we're working from home. And, you know, there was a really interesting, this woman had done an interview with um, men who are married to women who are kind of frontline, you know, doctors, nurses. And she's like, it's more than just that these guys are having to like tuck kids in at night, read to them and do all these things. She's like, they're having to learn what size clothes their kids wear. Mm which is really fascinating, right? Um, I just think we have to give each other a tremendous amount of grace. I think that's really interesting information and helpful information. I also think <laughs> it's information that can really lead to some marital fights after having listened to public radio. <laughs> um, I am doing a lot of the domestic stuff around our house. My job is not as demanding as my husband's, but I, I don't know if I've said this on here before, but the thought that has really helped me, so maybe it'll help be helpful, maybe not, but is like I didn't expect to be homeschooling right now, but my husband didn't expect to be running a church like from home. Like no one is doing things the way they want to be doing them. So a real genuine spirit of forgiveness and grace is like, I just think it's like the only way we're going to get through this as married people. Mm. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. Because mm -hmm. there, there was another article last week about how in Japan, the men are at home for the first time basically ever. Yeah. And yes. it's creating all this tension because the wives say they want their help, but then in practice, they don't seem to actually accept it. <laughs> They're bad at it. And yeah. uh, that is... That's not how we fold dish towels. If I know men, I know that that's a common thing you hear from guys. You're like, I'm willing to help out, but she's so right. controlling that I'd rather not do it. Right. Um, yeah. In the first place. And then you get, again, you get into the, the inner game of tennis. And totally. all of a sudden, uh, you know, you're, 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 you're on your knees uh, praying you're on your knees yeah. praying, mm. which is our next article, The Science yeah. of Prayer in the Wall Street Journal by Elizabeth Bernstein. Uh, she's uh, giving us an overview of prayer as a sort of, because so many people are praying right now in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, is there any kind of research that backs up prayer? And she, she continues to... Um, she says they, they quote research that has been done uh, that prayer has similar benefits to meditation. It can 
calm your nervous system, shutting down your fight or flight response. It can make you less reactive uh, to negative emotions and less angry. Then she quotes uh, a 2005 study in the Journal of Behavioral Medicine comparing secular and spiritual forms of meditation, which found that spiritual meditation to be significantly more calming. Uh, they describe it like this. Imagine carrying a backpack hour after hour. It will start to feel impossibly heavy, but if you can hand it off to someone else to hold for a while, it will feel lighter when you pick it up again. This is what prayer can do, says Amy uh, Vockholtz, who was one of the people behind that study. It lets you put down your burden mentally for a bit and rest. But then they get to a very interesting finding for our purposes. Not all prayer is created equal, experts say. A 2004 study on religious coping methods in the Journal of Health Psychology found that people who approach God as a partner or collaborator in their life had better mental, physical health outcomes than people who are angry at God, who feel punished or abandoned, or who relinquish responsibility and defer to God for solutions had worse outcomes. It's similar, it's similar to the way a loving relationship... Uh, to a partner brings out the best in you, says one doctor, the lead researcher on the study. Um, then it gets into something. Uh, she, she, the Miss Bernstein actually uh, conveys an example of prayer in her own life. She said, "I turned to prayer one day last summer, one of the worst of my life." My father, who had suffered a heart attack and a stroke a few weeks earlier, had a cardiac arrest in the hospital one morning. I have never been someone who prays much, but as I paced the hallway outside my dad's room while doctors worked for four long minutes to jumpstart his heart, a nurse asked if I wanted to pray. I told her I did, but wasn't sure how. She took my hands in hers, bowed her head to mine, and began praying out loud for both of us. Dear Lord, we ask for your support. The medical staff was able to revive my father. He was intubated and rushed to the ICU, and a doctor explained that my dad was not out of the woods. So I went down to the small chapel at the hospital and called for a chaplain. A pastor arrived. He taught me the serenity prayer, then recited it with me until I stopped crying. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. When we finished, I felt stronger. Now I return to the serenity prayer again and again. Great article. It's funny. We were just at the children's hospital today with my son, you know, with the cast. And um, there's no weirder place to be in a pandemic than a children's hospital because the contrast is so sharp because everything's super, super cheery, but everyone's like in a mask and is like, and your temperature's getting taken and, you know, you have to scan your phone and basically sign an affidavit, you know, I mean, it's just very, it's a very intense experience to go into a hospital and, um, especially children's, but we got up to our floor and all of the usual sort of entertainments that we depend upon were gone. So the, um, the books were all cleared out. The, um, television was off, which was weird. Mm. Uh, I think they, they wanted to discourage you from sitting. Um, and, so I was like, looked around because Neil is a child that like wants to have something to Calvin. do. Calvin. And yeah, Calvin. <laughs> and I was like, let's go look at the tropical fish. Um, Cause we love fish. Uh, we have a fish uh, confetti egg Condon. And we walked over and looked at the fish and Neil said, uh, mama, I think that fish is dying. And there was this fish in the corner of the aquarium that was flailing 
And the other fish were like coming over and like poking at it. And one of them started to nip at the tail of the fish. And it was for sure. And it would kind of get up and hop along the rocks and then go back down. It was like incredibly sad to see. And I real my first thought was like, God, what in the hell are you doing? You know what I mean? Like we've gotten to a children's hospital in a pandemic. It's weird. We just want to go home. And now there's a tropical fish dying in front of us. <laughs> and I looked at Neil and I kind of halfway was like, hey, do you want to pray for the fish? And he immediately put his hands together and put his head down. And, you know, we just prayed that the fish would die quickly and that the other fish would leave that fish alone. And then we, you know, prayed that the people would come and get the fish out. So, you know, all these sorts of things. It honestly, it made me think of um, when Andrew Cuomo said this thing early on in the pandemic, he was like basically telling New Yorkers, like, you should stay at home, try to take care of yourselves spiritually. And he's like, I can't help you with that. Do you guys remember this? Yeah, yeah. And there were all these like clergy that were like, like literally put up the video of him saying this and we're like, we can help you with that, you know? And I was like, can we? Like, I don't know. Like, is that, I just, I, you know, I think about talking to Jacob Smith in the midst of this and him saying that, you know, there's a, a pastor he really respects in New York. Uh, who's doing like a big conference call and with a bunch of other pastors. And they were like, how can we keep our people encouraged? And he was like, you, you can't like, this is like horrible what's happening, you know? And I think there's part of me that's like, prayer is this sort of like wandering into the darkness, holding our hands out towards the light experience. And that is for me, very unique to my relationship with Jesus to just say, I, I can't fix this. The church can't fix this. We're certainly not going to fix people's problems with spirituality overnight. You know, we're actually not going to fix anything. We're, we're wandering out in the darkness with our hands open, looking for comfort. And, and that's really what prayer feels like, um, for me. And, um, I totally, it, we're all in such darkness right now with our eyes, you know, our, our eyes searching for light, our hands out in front of us. I mean, it, it kind of later, it made all the sense in the world to me that kind of in the midst of being in a children's hospital where everyone's trying to control everything and it's really high anxiety. And basically what we're all doing is avoiding death, right? Is that we would see this creature die and my kid and I would say, you know, we should probably pray. Mm. I love this article. Um, on one hand, it feels so strange to try to quantify and justify something scientifically that's spiritual, but it is, in my experience, unassailably true, you know, that there some days I wake up in the morning and the day feels manageable, and then there are other days where the day does not feel manageable, uh, and maybe I'll spin my wheels for a moment, and then I'm like, you know what, maybe I should pray about this. Maybe this is something that's just beyond me. I need to give it over. And when I do that, um, and I, I tell God the truth and what I need from Him, um, there is a, some peace that um, does come over me. And then usually I completely forget that I prayed until I get to the end of the day, and I was like, today was not nearly as horrible as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> Things actually kind of worked out. Um, and it's just, it, that's a huge comfort, and I, I, I feel guilty for how often I forget 
just how available God is and how present he is. Um, and I think what I loved about this article is that what it said scientifically, I think, is, is also what Jesus says about prayer, right? That um, pray as you can, not as you can't. There's no right way to pray. Just tell God what you want. Tell him the truth. It doesn't need to be eloquent. It doesn't need to be long. In fact, he, Jesus specifically says, keep it short. You know, don't think that like the pagans do, who think that God will hear them because of their many words. And then he teaches us to pray the Lord's Prayer, which is like 30 seconds long. And at the same time, he says, pray for what you want. You know, you, you have a father who knows how to give good gifts. Um, I was doing a Zoom meeting with the high schoolers from my church last Sunday, and we were talking about prayer. And one of them said, you know, well, what I, you know, what I, what I know is I, I want to, when I pray to God, I really want to make sure that I'm saving my prayers for like big things. I don't want to wear him out, you know. And I was like, hey, I hear you, but no. No. Right. Like Jesus tells us to pray for whatever we want, whenever we want. He knows what we want before we ask. You know, told in the parable of the the widow who wears out the unjust judge, the neighbor who wakes up his, his friend in the middle of the night and asks for a loaf of bread and says, that's what Jesus says prayer is like. Just keep on going and going and going until you get what you want and you get what you need. Mm. Um, and so I think that's a helpful word, especially for people who don't know how to pray. Which is, or who yeah. are intimidated by prayer, yeah. which, is a, which is a lot of people, you know, both non-Christians um, and then a lot of Christians who come from maybe liturgical backgrounds where we have all these beautiful historic prayers, which I highly value, but there's no instruction given about how to pray. So just, I loved what, what did it say? You know, when you pray, imagine that you are um, calling a friend on the phone with whom you may not have spoken in a while. Yeah. And just spill your guts. Just, just whatever comes to your mind. God's there for it. And, and uh, as, as Paul says, uh, what does he say in Romans? When we do not know what to pray, uh, the Spirit intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. Um, so maybe just groan. Bleh. You know, that, that, that could be your prayer. Well, <laughs> and God, like a very and, Calvin. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's a prayer we're all praying a lot right now. When will this end? Ah! So, and God loves that. There's that paragraph in there about how people seem to have, there'd be more effect for those who see God as partner versus those who see God oh, as yeah. like, as judge and, or those who ask like to God to sort of collaborate with them versus God who to really provide a solution. And I, I don't know. I mean, I obviously fall in the latter camp where I think of, or I, or I, I, I believe that God does provide solutions and you know that that yeah. we're not yes. sort of partners we kind of use that as as maybe a straw man sometimes on this mock, on this podcast but uh what I think they're really talking about is people people who view God as uh scary and you therefore yes. have to get your prayers right and edit yes. them and curate them so that you're not really being honest because you think that the very the right tone of voice or the right words are going to unlock something because it's versus those who uh, who have are approaching God from not for acceptance but from acceptance uh, through the sort of blood of Jesus if you, if you want to get use that language who who feel comfortable uh, bringing themselves like as they actually are and there's an intimacy yeah. and a relationship that is already established that I think that's that's how I would kind of re understood what they were trying to say there is if you're approaching God with trepidation um, 
trying to uh, get it right, then your prayer life is going to have a different effect, at least psychologically, who knows spiritually. But um, then if you come to God, as, as you said, RJ, as, as, as a, uh, uh, someone who wants good for you, who knows you and loves you still. There was an interesting thing I saw once. Uh, it was sort of this diagram given to me by a Christian who was also uh, a neuroscience PhD and a clinical psychologist and a great guy. Um, the quadrants, the, the, the two axes, one axis was present versus absent, and the yes. other one was judgmental versus accepting. Yes. And interestingly, um, and it was about how you relate to your parents, but of course it was also about how you relate to God. But interestingly, um, what mattered more was the presence absence than the judgment um, acceptance, that it was better almost to think of God as being present and judgmental than absent and, um, and benevolent. You know, so, so, yeah, so there totally even was. is there even is a sense that you know even if your concept of God is not and let's face it, who of us has a perfect concept of God? Like, give me a break. Right. But this idea that He actually is present with you um, is 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 powerful. But uh, Dave, I do agree. With you. It was a bit of a straw. This whole it was a bit of a straw man, right? The the dichotomy between judgmental versus co-creators. Like there are other there are other ways to see God. But all that aside, I mean, praise God, this is in the Wall Street Journal. Like, give me a break. You know, nice I'll, to see. I'll take it. My uh, my sister in law Bonnie Zal give a little shout out to Bonnie Poon Zal out in England, um, because she's worked with a number of these uh, people uh, who were quoted in the article uh, on studies about anger with God and how that affects uh, mm. your psychologically what the psychological effects are with that. Um, I want to close with something again uh, that was written by Todd Brewer. Are on Mockingbird uh, about how the gospel never goes out of style. Now, what he's addressing is, uh, well, is a deeper um, quandary, I guess, in the life of a, of a Christian. He says, when you learn something new and genuinely revolutionary, there's a slow decay from its original vibrancy, a diminishing marginal utility. Over time, the new thing transforms into the familiar thing, like a painting that fades into wallpaper. Ideas become taken for granted as something known, but without the emotional force they once had, they lose their radical quality. They may gather dust over time to eventually become forgotten and replaced altogether. Sometimes this process is both necessary and good. Adapting to new information and circumstances characterizes intellectual flexibility or personal growth, uh, just as stubbornness and rigid dogmatism are rarely commendable qualities. The movement of ideas from vibrancy to wallpaper is of particular importance of note for Christianity, which is founded upon the world-shattering message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The announcement of its good news strangely warms hearts, incites a revolution of the self, and turns the world upside down. But as time moves on, does the vitality of the message weaken like every other piece of news we consume? Experientially, this is certainly the case, and it accounts for some of the ways people change their minds over the years. The original potency of what drew one to Christianity in the first place is so often reconfigured into the pursuit of different gospels or gospel-adjacent motifs and themes. Many go through phases on their spiritual journey like they change out of clothes, mirroring the temperaments of various life stages. For better or worse, the gospel inevitably becomes quotidian from time to time, more like daily bread than a sumptuous feast. The old gospel that used to so animate the soul is relegated to a past era of naivete. You've moved on. To say that the gospel might become the wallpaper of our lives also implies that it can become our spiritual home. 
a place of safety and the backdrop that informs the whole of life. If the gospel feels lukewarm, this is not the sign of personal failure or sin, nor is it a failure by God, our preachers, or the good news itself. Instead, the experience of hot and lukewarm oscillations of the gospel together reflect the slow but deliberate work of God over time. The good news of Christianity is the announcement of unmerited salvation by the event of Jesus' death and resurrection. The reception of this grace through faith is not merely the gateway into Christianity, but the essence of Christianity itself. This grace is the lens by which we are always understanding ourselves and the world around us. So we return to the gospel again and again in hopeful expectation that it continually renews and refreshes us. Like an old pair of blue denim jeans or Air Jordans, it only gets better with age, never really goes out of style, and always fits just right. I loved this. Tell me why. I I really loved um, the two the two images that were so good were um, the two thoughts he had about if grace is the wallpaper, then this is sort of this home that we can settle into, I think is really incredible. And also just the way he talks about maybe our relationship with the gospel and how it can feel lukewarm and then feel hot is, is the, the way, I mean, he doesn't use the word, but it almost feels like, like the way that sanctification happens. Right. Um, it's kind of beyond us um, and beyond our own efforts and doesn't really have anything to do with us on some level, but is, you know, God moving in and through and for us. So, yeah, I just thought this was such a merciful piece. As someone who often is like the problem with people not understanding the gospel is the pulpit. Um, it was really like as someone who's in a pulpit, <laughs> so maybe I need to listen to this before I talk, comforting to me to hear Todd say like, Maybe that's not what this is about, you know? So, yeah, I thought this was great. It resonated with me, too. I, I have, I've been, th- I don't know why this has come up in my own thinking, but I've just been, th- you know, thinking about my past and, and thinking about, um, you know, it was right around 17 and a half years ago. I remember because Jackson was about six months old. It was January. It's in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, uh, when I sort of heard the gospel again for the first time as an adult in a way that was transformative and in a way that was healing and really has been the fuel for my ministry like ever since. Um, and it was definitely like the law gospel paradigm, right? It was a yeah. class with your dad, uh, Dave, on Galatians. Oh, and mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, not your dad, Sarah. Thank you. Dave, Dave's Thank dad. you, Mr. Taylor. We appreciate it. You were Thank- learning about soybean farming. Okay, go ahead. That's right. Um, (laughs) yeah. And uh, for a few years after that, it was kind of red hot. It was like everything was law gospel. You know, I had to, I started a law gospel Bible study in seminary. And then when I was in, in youth, I was in youth ministry then. And so I was trying to do a, a high school law gospel Bible study. And like, sometimes it worked and a lot of times it didn't. Um, and I have all of those same convictions now, but it does. And don't get me wrong. I'm still very excited about the message I proclaim. But it does feel more like wallpaper than it does like um, the gorilla in the room or the elephant in the room, but in a, in, a, in a helpful, healthy way where I feel like it's it's now become the foundation of my ministry in a such a way that I don't have to be so explicit about it all the time and just kind of live life, minister to people, preach, do pastoral care, this, whatever it is. And, and, and that's the base level theological understanding, but I don't, I don't have to prove it all the time. And I don't, also don't have to be 
Uh, I don't feel like I have to be against anything. I don't have to preach against anything. I can just talk about what I'm for rather than what I'm fighting. Um, and that's nice. I think of uh, uh, the phenomenon of, well, we talked about it, I think, last summer, the phenomenon of deconversion and uh, deconstruction that goes on in sort of mainly post-evangelical circles. And there is a sense in which you, if you are at all lukewarm on anything, uh, then you cannot be a Christian. Like it's, 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 I, I shall vomit you out of my well, mouth. You're, you're, you're full on or not at all. And there seems to be much more room, for example, in the Roman Catholic tradition for people to just be, um, a church going, not constantly in a state just of like, be. you know, on fire. Uh, and, um, there, I, I envied that at the time. Um, there didn't seem to be any kind of, uh, permission to be anything but, 100%. That's why you get all these articles about doubt is so great because it's because there's a lot of people were told that they could if they doubted ever anything once they were sort of toast. And um clearly that's not hmm. the, the but but then you thrust people into this sort of soup of doubt being good which is clearly not true to human experience either. So I loved what Todd had to say uh, cuz I also in the back of my mind I remember hearing someone uh, justify their apostasy by saying that like you know uh I don't trust anyone who doesn't change their minds occasionally. And like I was like I that on the surface I was like that's true, but I also don't trust anyone who changes their mind constantly. Um, mm. And uh, there are some things that are larger than you are and that you're caught by rather than you catch, like that, are, that exceed you needing to assent to them in, in any particular way all the time. So there's an eroticism that I think Todd is pushing back against, which I find to be truly comforting. Just in this state of, it allows for um, fluctuations of mood and geography and circumstance and all these things which are true to life that don't invalidate the gospel somehow. Um, no, it sounds like faith it to sounds me. Like faith. <laughs> faith in something bigger than your own particular emotional uh, state. And yet it's also a wonderful experience when you read, for me, it was like reading the Tom Holland book or reading uh, uh, Francis Spufford or something like that, where it's like, gosh, I got so excited to be a Christ Christian Absolutely. Again. Oh and my I gosh, kinda, yes. I kind of needed that. Uh, Yes. Or I watched, you know, whatever it is. I read... Buck. <laughs> Buck. Yeah, uh, something like that. And I just realized, wow, this is... I got that feeling again, like I was 17 and... Urgency. That urgency. So I, I do... Urgency. And that's the hard part about being a in the in the professional side, on the pulpit side of this, is that it, there's almost like a... Uh, you want to, you can't really escape um, needing to re-engage your heart and uh, be in tune with what's really going on and where this is really touching down. And sometimes, because if you're just feeding people what you think they should hear, uh, then it's going to ring false. And yet, we, that's, that's, when I, we talk about prayer, that's always, that's my constant prayer. It's like, you know, set me back on fire, put something in my, in my out of the blue, some sort of surprising grace that will, like the baseball card story from last week, that will mm. um, reignite the flames that have, you know, are at embers right now. The embers are okay, but God, God puts those Light things. Light the fire in my soul. Oh, Lord, <laughs> I just lit something. Uh, Sarah, let's put it out. Does someone have a bucket of water? Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, it does make me think a lot about how, like, I'm a lifelong Christian 
except for when Amis became Jewish. Um, and Kabbalah, how, it was it was Kabbalah that almost Kabbalah, had you. Kabbalah, totally. No, my gosh, if that would have happened, I would be Jewish right now. But it was before that. It was just like you know Southern Reform Judaism. But um, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, the I mean, way I was Moses intended. Right, exactly. <laughs> I was. It was UCC Judaism. Okay, so I was. You know, I was raised in the church, though, in Christianity, and I. It does make me think. I mean, back to sort of our original NPR opener, like, and I say this to Dave all the time. Like, I wouldn't be. I don't think I would be a priest if it weren't for the work of Mockingbird pointing me pointing me to a new home. I mean, if we use that metaphor, really pointing me to a new home and saying, actually, like you can be in this place that has this like grace filled wallpaper and you can rest and you can believe that this message actually will save people's lives. Right. I mean, Dave, I love Mm -hmm. what you said about the prayer stuff, because I do think it's a little dangerous sometimes when we're like, you know, (laughs) when we don't believe that our prayers can actually change things, that, that always makes me a little nervous. Like we, like you can, you can be in this home where, where prayer actually, where God actually hears your prayers and cares Mm. about them, you know? Um, and then you can be so moved by that, that like, you want to tell the whole neighborhood, you know, like you want to walk out of your house and you want to tell other people you can live in these houses. Like you can find your rest here. Um, so, I mean, I, I just, I think it's such a beautiful way of thinking about, um, what this message means because I totally identify with what Todd writes about as we all do where, you know, there have been seasons in my life where I'm like, what is this even? Is this even, what am I even? And, I love what he says because basically what he's saying is like, you know, when you're struggling with this or when it doesn't feel like you're as on fire with this as you have been before, like God is abundantly in that too. Well, thank you both again. Thank you all of you who are listening and all of you who are supporting this work. Uh, and just, um, we're grateful. It's a real privilege and, uh, um, we can't wait to touch base with you again soon. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Hey.